fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's red-headed stepchildren. As a red-headed stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling open Hollywood's crypt to review Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void. <laughs> Um, if you skip the movie, this was easily the weirdest movie we've seen so far. I agree. Like, John Waters was limited to starting his career in the 60s. Gaspar Noe had no such limitations. And I have a feeling he has also done a whole lot more psychotropic drugs. Yeah, I'd say I'd say that's true. So for those of you who skipped um, Enter the Void, what is it about, Andy? (laughs) So Enter the Void is the ending of the story of Oscar, a man living in Japan with his sister and best friend. Oscar is killed 15 minutes into the film, and we spend the next two hours looking through the eyes of his spirit as it floats through Tokyo, going back and forth between his friends, his sister, and Oscar's life as it flashes before his eyes, before he finally is reincarnated at the film's end. And (laughs) as so often is the case, that's certainly what happens. Uh, Yep. I don't even know where to start with this movie. Where do we start? Um, I would like to start with talking about something we haven't talked about for any of the movies in uh, this project so far. And I would like to just touch on the studio that Mm -hmm. bought the rights to this film and distributed it. And Enter the Void was distributed by IFC Films. And IFC is a wonderful little studio that was basically doing what one of my favorite modern studios, A24, does now. And they, you can go look them up on Wikipedia and look through what they've done. And it's a lot of original, cerebral, thought-provoking, kind of out-there films. And both of these studios kind of have a niche for not being interested in crowd appeal and being more interested in critical appeal it's more about being art than being a super successful entertaining movie so for example films that a24 has done is moonlight ladybird eighth grade hereditary the witch the lobster and ex machina Right. Some of the scariest movies ever, <laughs> namely Hereditary and The Witch. Um, we had a long, in-depth conversation about Hereditary and what specifically scares you and me, and it was fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you haven't seen Hereditary yet, just, just it, you, you've been with us through nine episodes now. Hereditary is the scariest movie ever made, in my opinion. It has the scariest ending of a horror movie ever. <laughs> yeah meanwhile ifc's um slogan is always on slightly off which i find very fitting yeah um and and a couple of their a couple of their big hits something that i think people would recognize my big fat greek wedding fahrenheit 9-11 the michael moore documentary portlandia yeah ifc is, is also uh, right they also produce television and Portlandia, and I think Documentary Now 
are some of their comedies. Um, and um, Comedy Bang Bang. Right, exactly. Um, so just to name a couple other films, um, Antichrist, Pontypool, Che, Gamora. These are a lot of like strange films we've discussed how like i'm very big on heavy buy-in and i guess that's why i I like these studios that demand your buy-in and aren't interested if you don't want to give it (laughs) interesting and i think that's a good way to get into actual enter the void because there is so much that is fascinating about this movie and there are so many choices that are just bizarre but in most cases the best kind of bizarre this movie is entirely filmed uh in first person it is a it is a pov movie yeah so for like you said oscar is killed in the first 15 minutes so for the first 15 minutes of oscar's pov oscar is blinking and so we see the camera blackout and then fade back in i guess would that be the terminology yeah so quickly i mean the the camera's blinking and i was i was delighted when i realized what was going on there because i i don't i can't think of any other point of view movies that account for blinking like it's it's amazing you know it's it's presented as one continuous shot there are there are a couple points where you can obviously tell where like a CGI city passes in front of you and and that's how they get around actual camera movements. But stylistically the movie was wonderful. Yeah. And it was so pretty to watch. And, you know, I'm i uh, I'm not a, <laughs> I I'm, I'm not against the culture, but I am not a significantly heavy drug user. This is a <laughs> movie that is very much about drugs, you know, in in yeah. the short time Oscars alive, there's a sequence where he smokes DMT, and we are supposed to see his trip in that way. And you know, I just kind of had to sit there and think about, man, what if you watched this just completely out of your mind, like blasted yeah. on some sort of hallucinogen? What would that do for the viewing experience? What would that do for? you the the viewer and i think a a a whole lot of drugs helped make this movie (laughs) well i think i i mean i don't i don't know i watched this completely sober but i would wonder if it isn't a little bit terrifying to watch this high sure Um, because of the subject matter of the movie and because of how intense it could get i think it might be a little unnerving I think you're right. I think this would this would wind up being a bad trip. I mean, depending on how long <laughs> you're you're going through it, it certainly plays out like a bad acid trip. And if you are going to watch this movie while high, just, you know, first be safe. But second, make sure it's a high that will last you a long time because this movie <laughs> is how long, Andrew? Uh, this movie is a good two and a half hours long and it was a saturday afternoon event at my house right. <laughs> and, and, and you're going through this and you know oscar dies in the first 15 minutes and within like the next 10 minutes we get the sequence where his life flashes before his eyes and 
that that sequence ends and you're sitting there like oh man that was that was the movie wow how 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 crazy and then you go to turn it off and you realize there's an entire hour of the film left yeah that was the moment when i was like okay buckle in i might have to pause get up stretch a little bit because (laughs) there was still so much of the movie left and i think it's you know his his recollection of his life flashing back, I think it's a little longer than, than 10 minutes, but it's still, there's a point where you realize, oh, there's still a whole other hour. <laughs> right. This isn't the, cause, because, you know, through all the, through all the crazy soul POV stuff. And, you know, at first glance, this might seem like it's kind of a meandering movie, but underneath all that, there is an actual journey that Oscar's spirit goes on here and it is entirely laid out in, you know, the first couple minutes of the movie by his friend, Alex telling him all about the Tibetan book of the dead. Ah! Cue my excited noise about (laughs) literature being represented in movies and folklore being represented in movies. Uh, hey, howdy, hey, it's your local literary fantasy folklore and fairy tale nut, Stephanie. <laughs> Tibetan Book of the Dead? I'm assuming it's about death. It tells you how your spirit comes out from your body after you die. I loved this. I'm glad. Like, I didn't, I did not know this was a real thing. You know, Tibetan Book of the Dead, there's, there's so much appropriated mumbo jumbo in pop culture that you just go yeah okay yeah it's the lost ark or whatever but like Uh so not only is this a real thing but this is a thing that you extensively know about well i did i will say i did some research but yes i did know about it um because world religions and world folklores are my thing so yeah as you astutely pointed out it's totally a real thing yep 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 and it's called in its native tibetan the Bardo Throskril, or liberation through hearing during the intermediate state. Intermediate state being between when you're alive and when you're dead. It's the best known work of Nyingman literature. Nyingma being the oldest school of Tibetan Buddhism, which places its emphasis on discovering and continuing the natural and primordial state of being. So, like you said, Andy, his friend Alex totally walks him through the whole thing. But it's really interesting because the Tibetan Book of the Dead is broken into three different stages called different bardos, like the movie is. So there's the moment of death, which features the experience of the clear light of reality. So when Alec, or excuse me, when Oscar dies, there's that big bright light. And there's kind of this transition of light and sound into... The experiencing of reality, which features the experience of visions of various Buddha forms or the nearest approximation. So Oscar doesn't really experience Buddha. He just kind of experiences his own life, which I think is one reading of it. And then there's the rebirth, which for us as the audience viewers of this movie focuses on the love hotel and Oscar's spirit weirdly entering his sister's body and becoming a new soul. So, yeah, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's a real thing. <laughs> I <laughs> I I love I I'm thankful that you knew about this enough to provide further insight because I I might not have and I I really do appreciate 
Noe and the fact that he took this thing and tried to accurately transcribe it because I don't think a lot of um, especially American Western viewers are going to be familiar with Enter the Void and see it. But that number is a whole lot bigger than the amount of Western viewers who are going to read the Bardos, the the Bardo Thoskroll, you know, read the real Book of the Dead. So it's a very clever way to at least talk about this, this thing and this concept and sort of show your work and apply what it's supposed to be without it being somebody, okay, I'm, I'm going to read my Tibetan scroll now. Sure. It's bringing a piece of culture to people who wouldn't have experienced it anyway. Right. You know? Yeah. And I, I, I bring this up because the movie makes, I wouldn't have broken that down if the movie hadn't made such an excellent point of following the structure we're brought into Oscar's high, slightly dream Bardo-esque with his way trippy 1995 screensaver visuals. We follow his waking life, complete with his thoughts out loud, which is so genius. And I love it so much that I want that thought to enter my soul and I want it to get me pregnant, a la this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And then we see his death and the death follows the three Bardos that we talked about. And it's magic. It, it truly is, you know, this, this, this film, this goes again to the, it was more interested with being almost an art piece that you have to sit down and watch than, than truly being a movie. The, the way that they explore light and color, you know, there's the sequence where Oscar is shot and killed in the bathroom and ever so slowly you know the camera creeps up you see his body the camera looks up you see the the lamp in the bathroom and it just kind of goes into the lamp and it's you know it's over a minute where you're just in the color of the light and then you come back and like the transformation to soul is complete and for a moment i was like seriously afraid that we weren't going to hear anything <laughs> for the for entire the rest, rest of the movie of, yeah exactly yeah. Um, and it's it's just it, it is a it is a wonderful visual experience it is something that i i technically marveled at how they filmed so much of this movie and you know the scenes of it that weren't cgi the constant motion of camera, the constant overhead looking at something, the way it all just moved around was so mwah, good for, you know, a film Chef nerd kiss. like me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. I love the idea that he doesn't get the Buddhic visions. Instead, we get his flashbacks of his life. And I'm here for the interpretation that, we are there there's an interpretation of buddhism where we are we are all the buddha we all have the good light within us and i'm here for that interpretation of like here's what happened in oscar's life that makes him human and makes him light and makes him holy and saccharine and unsacred and mundane all at the same time right and the movie does a really good job of not judging morality. 
it does a really good job of not presenting anything as anyone as bad or good or or sinners or saints. It just presents them as human in a way that's really appropriate, I feel. Sure, and that makes sense. You know, you're right. It I like the I like your choice of words there. It balances. He, he's he's holy and unsacred at the same time. It it just presents the things that are most key to why Oscar was Oscar, and it it presents them without judgment, without comment, and it's there's an idea that your life is going to flash before your eyes and it's going to be a movie theater and you're going to be able to comment on things. You're going to defend or reminisce on situations. And this movie explores what if that's not the case? And it's just literally, Hey, these were the things that made you, you, you're going to be forcibly reminded about them and there's nothing you can say about it. There's nothing you can do to stop it. And it's not even an attack. It's just this. Yeah, I really love that. I'm glad. There's a lot to love in this movie. There was some stuff I didn't love. Um, I yes. think <laughs> I think Gaspar Noe didn't, or didn't, I should say, use the proper tense, didn't do a good job of explaining a lot. And that's very yeah. defendable in the way he presented this movie it's you know first person and in your first person life you maybe don't always understand things but there were so many little details that the both of us after talking about it missed out on or it wasn't clear Mm -hmm. about like you talked Mm -hmm. about how you loved him thinking and you know there's a very shortly into the film or the film the film begins with Oscar and his sister Linda getting into a little argument and she leaves and then you you hear Oscar talking and I seriously was in the middle of writing down who talks to themselves when they're alone no oh internal monologue okay mm. But, like, it it took me a second to get that, you know? When he's killed in the bathroom, it's not exactly clear what is going on, why he's killed. It's He's shot by policemen, but it's not, like, super clear that those are cops until later in the movie. You know, there were just some things that it's... this, This is an inherently, incredibly unreliable narrator. And again, that's defendable, but... Yeah. If I'm going to critique this movie, I am going to bring up, like, even if you're paying full attention, you're going to miss some stuff. Like, this is a movie you have to go read about after you watch it to fully comprehend what you just watched. And I I count that as a criticism. Right. Well, and an unreliable narrator is basically you're dealing with a narrator whose credibility has been seriously compromised and there's no better unreliable narrator than someone who's dead and they're in a soul state, a liminal state, and they're looking at their life from their not all-knowing perspective. Yeah. So I I think it, it makes sense, like you said, to have there be questions and uncertainties and confusion because we only have oscar and even more than that 
we only have Oscar's soul. And Oscar's right. soul can't answer any questions. Right. Oscar's soul can just show us things. It's kind of like the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. Where sure. they, can just, they can just show you things. They can't... I mean, I guess ghost of past and present do kind of narrate things. But ghost of Christmas future just points. And that's kind of how I feel the soul is handled. That's... It can just... Go places. Yeah, that's that's a delightful uh, comparison. I like that. <laughs> oh, you know, just my literature nerd brain connecting Dickens to weird <laughs> French movies. There you go. You're welcome. <laughs> We're going to be like family from now on. Just you and me. I, I think another part of the thing, like, you look at the cast of this movie and you have Linda played by Paz de la Huerta. And mm-hmm. she's an actor. She is an established actor. She's been in numerous things. Um, I remembered her from the TV show Boardwalk Empire. Paz de la Huerta is a capital A actor in a way that mm-hmm. no one else in this movie really is, at least going yeah. by their film credits, you know. And so you have a... It's 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 the new French new wave where you don't use real actors. You just get people who want to be in a movie. And a great majority of the dialogue of this movie was improvised. And part of that was because it turns out Noé really doesn't speak English. Um, but I'm sure another part of that was just a, oh, it doesn't matter what you say. You need to talk about the Tibetan Book of the Dead. You need to have Linda say some stuff about how we're going to be together forever. The rest of it, Mm. eh, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so let's get into Linda. Cause I mean, she's, she's really the, the key of this movie in a way that even Oscar is that I, I don't think. Huh? That's interesting. Because it's Oscar, it's Oscar driving the movie, but just as much it's maybe it's like a twin narrative kind of situation. I could buy that. Linda certainly goes on her own journey in a living way. It's like way. Pretty in Pink. It is, yeah. There you go. It's supposed to only. You would argue that it's only supposed to be one narrative, and yet here's this other person who's consistently intervening. Right. You know, um, not the first time we see Linda, but the first time Oscar's soul sees Linda, that mm-hmm. is a remarkable scene. And I, 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 truly, <laughs> no, seriously, I, I truly loved it. Really? I, I really did. And, and so if you skip the movie, Linda is a stripper and this is established like, this this is just sort of revealed to us in in a couple of lines of dialogue and the fact that Oscar's soul after it vacates his body like follows outside of the building and follows Alex running to a strip club and goes into the strip club and you find Linda in there and what happens is she's in her like private room and has sex with her boyfriend Mario and in the middle of this and in the middle of them starting to go at it you know she gets a phone call and she ignores the call and instead 
has sex with her boyfriend and and Oscar our silent narrator is viewing all this and and like even the soul even goes back to outside the building where you see Alex making the call you see Alex leaving the voicemail Oscar's been shot Oscar's dead I don't know what happened you need to call me goes back to Linda and Mario as they finish having sex, goes through this weird moment where you zoom into Mario's head. So it's almost like Oscar is having sex with Linda. And the whole time the camera is vibrating with like this. I thought it was rage maybe, but just this pure emotion and like the, the 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 fact that it's mostly a sex scene has nothing to do with why I love it. I love the rage. I love the vibration. It is remarkably tense to know that she has a voicemail waiting that is going to completely change her life. And then to see her get that voicemail and just mm-hmm. crumble into yeah. a, a wailing pile as she realizes her not only is her brother dead, but her brother just died while she was having sex and the juxtaposition of those two things and the Shakespearean cosmic messed up irony of the whole Mm. situation. I found it incredibly affecting. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. I think the, the irony I, I appreciate. Andy, are you familiar with the phrase male gaze? I am. Yes. Okay, so um, in feminist theory, the male gaze is the act of depicting women and the world from a masculine heterosexual perspective that presents women as sexual objects. And that scene for me felt very male gaze-esque, especially coming from the perspective of your brother's soul is watching you have sex. It felt very creepy. It's specifically, gaze theory is specifically a key idea of feminist film theory. And it was presented by Laura Mulvaney in her now famous 1975 essay, The Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. Hmm. And so that, that insertion of not only showing the sex scene, and it's, it's pretty clear that Linda seems to be enjoying herself. So I don't have a problem from it from that perspective. It's just the layering on of her brother watching her have sex that felt really wrong. Sure. And there's a lot in Linda and Oscar's relationship that kind of then then later on after you see Linda and Oscar's relationship, I was like, oh, I feel I was right to be creeped out. But I definitely understand and agree with you about the irony that Linda declined the call and Linda decided to have sex instead and Linda then later finds out oh my brother died very possibly while I was intimate with my boyfriend so I can kind of see both sides <laughs> is what I think I'm saying sure sure well, <laughs> well so like I said like I I just I, I was very tuned into at least what I thought was the emotion of that situation I very much liked that yeah completely separate from that I 100% agree with you there was some very weird <laughs> Freudian incestual Ethiopian Ethiopian Oedipal there we go Oedipal overtones <laughs> to the entire film you know there's yeah there's oh absolutely the instance where multiple times Oscar's soul 
inhabits the head of a of a man having sex with his sister you know in the flashback we find him he he does the thing so many children do where they just kind of accidentally walk into their parents having sex Mm -hmm. there is a whole bunch of breast iconography that is portrayed in some telling ways and more than just telling there's there's a moment we we see in the life flashing before his eyes like oscar and his sister sleep naked in different beds but in the same room as adults yeah and mm-hmm. like okay maybe they're from europe or or uh, montreal or somewhere where that's a thing but no, and I I don't think that's the case because there's also several scenes. Um, there's a montage wherein Linda's wearing different clothing and she, throughout the montage, kisses or sucks on Oscar's ear. Right. <laughs> Which if you're... I... Um, nope, 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 nope. Never gonna do to my brother. Yeah, yeah I don't... I don't I, my, my sister doesn't bite my ear. I don't know. Ugh. Um, <laughs> Well, we'll save your throw-up noises. Let's get to the the pièce de résistance. Uh, there's a moment. There's a moment where Oscar licks his sister's dirty panties. <laughs> no, no, thank you. So, all this to say, yes, I think I understand your point about the scene where where the soul watches his sister have sex and is so angry. But I think. I had a really hard time contextualizing that scene because at first it struck me as really, really compulsively creepy that even as a dead soul, your brother would watch you have sex. Sure. And then it was just compounded by every single interaction that the character of Oscar and the character of Linda have throughout the rest of the movie. Does that make sense? I don't want to, I don't want to negate your, initial feelings about this scene well no and that's why like i'm trying to i'm I'm trying to distinguish like like i think noe was doing one thing with being a phenomenal director and creating tone and creating tension in a scene and i was a hundred percent here for that but at the same time like he wanted to explore all this weird incest for yeah I mean, no real reason. I mean, I, I I guess you could argue it enforces how Oscar gets resurrected at the end, but uh, no, and 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 that I was yeah. very yeah not here for. <laughs> well, and it's so interesting because because the movie is so heavily commenting on the Oedipal complex and the the theme of sister is mother and mother is sister there are moments where purposefully the cinematography is such that you think oscar is interacting with his mother and then it will smash cut and oscar is interacting with his sister but in the same setting so there's one instance where oscar as a baby is sucking on his mother's breast um for sustenance and then it smash cuts and suddenly it's his sister's face. Mm-hmm. Um, and the theme of nipples and nipples as sex play and nipples as sustenance is heavily vetted throughout the film as like 
a not only a visual theme but a literary theme as well like they keep touching on it and i think at one point his friend alex says like the only other point i've been happiest is when i was a child sucking on my mother's nipple or something to that effect yeah and and i think it's important you know we talk about male gaze i think there is the important distinction to be made linda does it too this isn't for sure this isn't just oh this creepy wasted stoner brother wants to do his sister it's there are some very weird interfamilial trauma related things because even be like like there's all the physical stuff you mentioned but like she also has so many lines in the film where it's like it's gonna be you and me now and she's like playing Mm. house with him and and cooking him dinner Mm -hmm. and and it's just it's it's yeah it's (laughs) you know there's big difference between taking psychedelics and and being a dealer you know I said I'm not a dealer. And you're a dealer, and you're a motherfucker, man. Um, did, did this show, did this movie have more sex than Showgirls? I think so. I think so. Showgirls didn't have a a five minute love hotel orgy sequence. Um, to its credit. Yeah. yeah, I think this movie had had more sex than Showgirls, and that you put that in your notes, and I put a note next to it and said, "Is sex cool?" Because in several of the movies we've watched, sex has thoroughly been a theme. And it made me start contemplating, is it that sex is cult or that cult movies will focus on sex more than blockbusters will? Because blockbusters know that sex isn't appropriate to have as a topic if you want to sell. That's a good point. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with era. You know, we talked about this a bit in the showgirls review and we've touched on it in other times like it depends a lot on when a movie is made you know america and western culture has stereotypically been a lot more puritanical or at least tries to present itself as more puritanical sex is so much of a bigger taboo you know it's 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 like the and this is a true thing like in most European television, an R rating mm-hmm. doesn't mean sex as much as it means violence. Like, mm. something can be PG-13 and have, like, a, a, an actual full-on intricate sex scene. Whereas, mm-hmm. in America, that's what gets you the hard R. But, you know, we can watch gory zombie movies, and as long as they don't feature disembodied breasts, they're going to pass the, uh, you know, the line. Yeah. And get a PG-13 instead. Right. I think sex is cult because it is such a... sex is. I think sex is cult because it plays so much with the taboos. And cult films play with the taboo of sex. And it's it's part of the thing that makes almost any cult movie cult is the willingness to explore those boundaries when mainstream filmmaking wouldn't. And yeah. more often than not, especially, you know, in the period between the 60s and, say into the early 2000s like like 
that's what we were doing. Sure, that makes sense. But yeah, this this was interesting. I just kind of made a mental note. This is the second movie that takes place in Japan. This is the second movie that has a scene in a gynecologist's office. And <laughs> it's the fourth movie to have very awkward sex scenes in it. Yeah. I'd like to, if I may, Stephanie, touch on some things in the back half of the movie. And by the back half, I mean the, by the back half, I mean like the last 10 minutes. <laughs> by the back half, you mean the most sex saturated scene of the film? Right. And, and, and one other part before, before we get to the Japanese love hotel. Um, okay. So, so Linda has an abortion and oh, that yeah, is shown that's... in, in complete, again, objective observer detail yeah and like i just felt it to comment that like when it when when else in what other movie are you going to see that you know to the point where Mm. i didn't even realize what i was seeing the first like time you see it like the, the camera enters the gyno office a couple of times and it's not until later you see the very upsetting you know fetus but you know the very first time you just see linda in stirrups getting something done to her and it completely went over my head until we went back and saw that um i bring up the fact that she had an abortion to then give proper context as to why something made me mad later (laughs) sure but before we get into that I'd like to make the very snide comment that if you're going to your gyno and you hear scraping noises like food being shoved into a Tupperware, you're not getting your annual appointment. You're getting an abortion. So as a as a as a woman, I was like, oh, I know exactly what's going on. <laughs> sure. Fair point. Because <laughs> I heard scraping noises and I was like, that's not what happens in a normal annual appointment. Right, oh, dear. Right. <laughs> but, you know. But, yes, I, I agree with you. And then there's also the fact that you pan out and you see the world's most giant under eight-week fetus ever. Yeah. Because... At eight weeks, there's no way a fetus is that big, but sure, it's fine. Yeah, I I have a feeling that was more just to really reinforce again for all the all the dumb men who wouldn't know. That's not what I meant. <laughs> That's not what I meant. You know, it's not. No, I know. I was I was more thinking about the actual dumb <laughs> men who watched this at can <laughs> didn't know. <laughs> oh. I, I, I'm okay. I was worried you were calling yourself a dumb guy. And I was like, no, you would have no way of knowing. It totally makes sense. No, it's all good. I, 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 I knew you weren't coming after me. <laughs> <laughs> I would never. So moving into the love hotel portion and like, like this is towards the end of Oscar soul's journey and it's gotten increasingly weird you know we haven't even talked about the car crash that oh yeah happens Uh, apparently when oscar and linda were a child their parents were killed in a car crash and that car crash keeps coming back and we are shown it again and again and again you know that's the trauma that Mm -hmm. breaks the breaks their family apart and leads to oscar and linda getting separated which gives them these these issues we've been discussing. Sure. 
there's a scene where Linda and Alex get in a taxi. Mm-hmm. And I, I make a distinction to clarify that it's Alex because the movie doesn't. And right. I thought it was Mario. Now. Oh, that changes interpretations quite a exactly. bit. Exactly. Just just to, to, to speed through what happened so I can get to my point. You know, Linda and Alex go to a, a love hotel and Oscar's soul is there. And it's just, you know, again, following with what the following the thos girl yeah <laughs> following what the thos girl you know talks thos okay thos girl which is like the hardest thing ever to say not 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 a not not a mouth sound i'm used to making no <laughs> no we are we are not tibetan humans we are white as shit sorry <laughs> <laughs> you know the the thos girl talks about in the rebirth part you know karmically impelled hallucinations Typically, imagery of men and women passionately intertwined and showing us a scene of a like fully booked out Japanese love hotel is a phenomenal way of visually representing that. But so Oscar, every, everyone's in, in the love hotel and Oscar sees Linda and Alex. Or if you're watching this for the first time and you're me, it seems like it's Linda and Mario having sex and he mm-hmm. um, enters Linda, and uh-huh. and and we'll we'll give that its proper due in a moment. But he he, okay. he enters his sister's womb, and it is you know very implied that he is reincarnated and reborn in that way. It is so important to know who the guy she's having sex with is. Because if it's her boyfriend that she already got an abortion for, that makes the scene infuriatingly useless. And I was sitting here so mad and so upset. And like, if you're going to have your um, female lead go through an abortion just so that your male lead can be reborn then it's useless and you're just showing it for shock value. And that is highly upsetting and unacceptable. That is not Mm. the case. (laughs) I've come to find out because it's Alex and that is such an important distinction. Yeah. And it's not, it's not well lit at all. Um, So the scene in the love hotel, you, you can't quite tell which man it is. So unless you back up, and fully examine it, it's very unclear who it is. And especially since also in the scene on the way to the love hotel, there Linda and Alex relive a car crash that you don't know if it's real or not, so you assume they're dead. So all of a sudden to see them alive again is very shocking as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we go back into how I, I like a lot of the visuals. That scene is so, so neon and distorted and, and the visuals are absolutely insane. It almost doesn't look like Linda. Like you really have to be like looking to get that it's Linda in that moment. Yeah. You never see Alex's face. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't want to pick too small of a knit here but it completely changes a, 
a key factor of the movie and you know you can walk away sure. with a completely different interpretation and and i the again the one note i would have given if i were the if i were the professor and and my my film student gave me this the note i would give him was you need to make at least a couple things a little more clear bud and maybe make it a touch shorter maybe make it a touch shorter <laughs> and let's get into this maybe don't have a sequence where we enter a woman's vagina, we being the camera, Ugh. see her insides, and have a penis thrust at us. Repeatedly <laughs> thrust right in our faces. So because the movie is point of view, there are so many moments where you go places that you're like, oh, I don't quite want to see this. But at that moment, I literally out loud said, oh, I don't need to be here. <laughs> I didn't want to do this on a Saturday. Actually, I think we saw it on a Sunday. So it's even more appropriate. is the Lord's Day. I do not. Oh, easily. the Like, <sighs> I don't know. Is it th- Between that and, and the very shocking out of nowhere first time you see the car crash, I'm not quite sure which is the more upsetting. Oh, I, yeah. I, I personally think probably the, the giant penis coming at my face. <laughs> the giant penis coming at my face. Because the car crash was was shocking but artistically done. Right. Um. I would argue the giant penis coming at your face is the one moment where I've thought, this is, this is a bit much. <laughs> yeah. You know, I look back, I, I actually just very recently re- re-listened to our John Waters, uh, Cecil B. Demented episode and oh. those, those sweet, naive days when we predicted it would be quite some time before <laughs> we saw anything weirder than an off-screen <laughs> gerbil going up a girl's butt. Uh, that was, that was a, a, a scant two two episodes ago, and here we are with something that totally takes the what, cake. What comes next, Andy? What comes next? Well, not the penis. <laughs> I, you're not here, but I am shaking my head in shame at you. I was going to say, oh, now you're mad at me? Now, that's, that's what it took for you to stop talking? <laughs> oh, I'm proud heavens. of that one. Oh. Well, so, all right. I, I, I think your husband summed it up best. You were kind enough to write down what, what he said immediately following the movie. And I quote, Here's the thing. I liked it. It was good. And I never want to watch it again. <laughs> I, I think that sums it up nicely. I, I I don't know. I would watch certain sequences again just to try to figure out how they got the camera done. I would maybe watch it again to see what shakes loose on the second viewing. But this is one of those movies that I don't need to watch again ever. Yeah. There are certain artsy movies that are really lovely to go back and watch and see how they've aged and continue a philosophical discussion with. This is one of those that I thought, I'm really glad I watched it. I'm really under, I really understand the philosophy that's behind it. And I do not need to revisit this ever again. Same. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
But if it isn't cult, I'm gonna throw. I'm gonna remove my left hand and throw it in the river because this is the most cult thing I've ever seen. Yeah, no, this is this is almost impenetrably cult. Like, I think you could sell the average viewer on any movie we've watched other than this, and you would have an easier time getting them to sit down than, oh yeah, man, it's a it's the it's a two and a half hour long out of body death cycle experience of a white dude living in Tokyo and he uh, has some interesting feelings about his sister. Yeah. I um, had a friend ask the weekend after this, Hey, what did you do last weekend? And I was like, well, (laughs) I watched this really weird movie and I kind of explained it. And the friend was like, cool. I'm never going to watch that. (laughs) (laughs) So, I, I can't. For those of you who skips the movie, I salute you. I hope maybe our conversation has given you enough that you feel like you've enjoyed it from a from an outsider's point of view. Um, if you ever have a rainy Sunday, this is one way to spend it. You could also just read a book. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope people focus in on the fact that we're sitting here being like, I'm very glad I watched it. And not the fact that we're yes. saying... Uh, I don't need to see it again, which also, God, we haven't even said, uh, if you're epileptic for the love of God, don't watch this movie. At least not. Oh, like, we should have started with that. Yeah, it'll, it'll go in the, in the, in the Twitter, like it, it'll go in the bio <laughs> epilepsy warning. Do not sure. watch this. <laughs> Do not watch this. The first 10 minutes. So the French open their films with end credits. They don't end their films with credits. Um, so the first 10 minutes are the credits which are entirely done in like strobe lights. Right. So please, please, please don't do that to yourself. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, so uh, did uh, most of this movie was improvised. Did you manage to find a favorite quote? I did. There's a scene where Oscar and Linda are dancing in a club. Not long after Linda has recently re- relocated to Tokyo And Oscar offers his sister drugs, and she says, I don't know. And Oscar says, just take it. It's like a vitamin. Which is fantastic. Yeah, like, there's there's this slight C storyline about how Linda's worried that Oscar's turning into, like, a a total druggie. And if, Mm -hmm. like, you just see throughout his life, this dude was so far gone down that path before we even got here to the start of the movie but that's yes uh, yes absolutely that's a very interesting favorite quote (laughs) i'm glad you had one well in the moment it's really fun in the moment it's really funny but now thinking back on it i'm like oh that's kind of well at least you had one i i was about to not have one at all there was no real quote that really struck with me and then after seeing that you had one i i decided my favorite quote was can i have some water based in totally because (laughs) i really really liked alex's voice like he dude dude had a cool way of speaking and asked for water a whole bunch so there's my favorite quote (laughs) okay he did look very, I don't know who that actor is, but he did look very similar to um, Enigo Montoya. Uh, 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 oh, Mandy Patinkin. Yes. Yeah, yes. He, he looks like Mandy Patinkin. He? I dig it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here debating if it's even worth saying what the uh, actor's name is. He is in like 
two other films. So he <laughs> he he was one of the guys who like he he auditioned. I I think I remember reading this. He auditioned because he really just wanted to like chat up Gaspar mm-hmm. Noé, and Aww. Noé thought he was cool and was like, "Hey, you want to be in the movie?" Um, sure. And and that is Cyril. I don't know if it's Roy or Wah because he seemed French to me. So I'm gonna go with Cyril Wah. Oh sure, yeah, Cyril Wah Wah. Cyril Wah Wah Water. Uh, that was a bad joke um jar (laughs) (laughs) uh Uh, do you have an oscar to give (laughs) sorry (laughs) i do composing myself i do have an oscar (laughs) please tell me about your oscar um, so my Oscar for Enter the Void was most impressive POV camera work, and mm-hmm. and I seriously like like give it that. This film got a standing ovation when it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, and like from a technical standpoint, at least, I can absolutely see why it it, it is visually stunning. It is beautiful, and more than just like complex interesting graphics work it is shot beautifully it is shot dynamically the camera is always moving the camera is you know except for the first 15 minutes of the movie and a couple of the flashback sequences never anywhere other than above the characters heads and I thought it was engaging. I thought it was visually interesting. There's this really awesome shot where Oscar looks in the mirror um, while he's still alive. And I was sitting there being like, I think I know how they did that. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy they did that. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it's such a yeah. good technical film. And you know, that that's my favorite thing about it was just how well done it was from a camera standpoint. Yeah. It's really beautiful. The mirror scene alone is fantastic. What about you? My Oscar is for Best Child Actor for Young Linda. Yeah. That, that actor is M- Emily Allen Lind. And holy God, this child is phenomenal. I'm really excited to watch her grow up. I don't know if she's been in anything else. I mean, she certainly deserves to be. She, yeah, she was like a, a stunning part of the movie. She, she's really kind of the, uh, like the the main part of the trailer, really. Yeah. Um. So I'm looking on IMDb right now. Same. She's she's gonna have a career. Yeah, she's in Revenge, which I guess is an ABC show that I do not watch. Oh, hey, she was she- in Hawaii Five O. There you go. Yeah, she she has a very respectable career for someone as young as she is. You know, she. she... <gasps> Holy shit! Sorry, you can cut that out because <laughs> no, that's. Are you are you looking at what I'm looking at? <laughs> she was Shirley Temple in yeah, Jay Edgar. About... Right, I was about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm glad I I'm glad that you got that. Oh my god, that's crazy! That makes so much sense though, because she has. She's perfect for that. Yeah. Yeah. So Emily Allen Lind, like, be on the lookout. She she certainly seems like she is going to 
have a career for herself. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So shall awesome. we shall we play our favorite game? We shall. This uh, this is again. This is this is hard mode because. As we've established, there's only one person in this movie who has been in, like, more than three other Hollywood movies. Yup. So, um, unsurprisingly... <laughs> I went with I went with Paz de la Huerta. I don't know about you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um... And it's actually kind of fun because I I I can get this in two moves, but two different ways. Mm-hmm. So Paz de la Huerta was in the Cider House Rules with Charlie's Throne, mm-hmm. who was entrapped with Kevin Bacon. Oh, nice. Or she was in Boardwalk Empire with Michael Shannon, who you will remember was in The Woodsman. Sure. Yeah. But then you agreed after that episode where you said the woodsman and you won in one move that you were not allowed to use the woodsman anymore because you said you used it twice. No, no, that was Apollo 13. Oh, my bad, my bad, my bad. Okay. Uh, so now now I can't use the woodsman again. Okay, but I can <laughs> use the woodsman. I also went with Paz de la Huerta inside her house, but she's also inside her house with Toby McGuire. There you go. And Toby Maguire is in Beyond All Boundaries with Kevin Bacon. Nice. Yeah, so we tied. Go us. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Um, and and listener, if you want to uh, impress us, <laughs> do a six degrees with Enter the Void without using Paz de la Huerta. And I will give a prize of my choosing if anyone ever does that. Ooh, what kind of prize? Um, a shout out and one of our certainly famous by now and and sold out in their second printing uh Tetsuo Kusakabe shirts. <laughs> that we are uh, 100% going to make. 100% going to make. 100%. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll make you one if you can uh, if you can six degrees this without using Paz de la Huerta. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, and without using Emily Allen Lind, because now, as we've established, oh, yes. she's done Good some point. stuff. She's done Good some point. stuff. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um. So shall we pick our next film? We shall, indeed. And I'm uh, I'm quite excited because a uh, little bit of behind the pot here. Normally, I I give it a couple of test runs beforehand, mm-hmm. and you know I always re-randomize, but I just kind of warm up the Hollywood Crypt randomization machine. And I did not have a chance to do that this time, so Ooh. this time it is going to we're, we're flying blind. We still have 316 movies because I added something. I don't quite remember what anymore, but maybe we'll pick it and I'll remember. So, <laughs> the next thing we are watching is 196. And 196. Not Anaconda, not Anaconda, not Anaconda. Huh. 196 is Return to Oz. The 1985 Walter Murch directed children's fantasy movie. Huh. Okay. 
so I, I I don't remember which one of us even put this on here, um, but this uh, this film is famous for scaring young children. I do know that. Cool. <laughs> and um, this is at time of recording only available on Amazon, and okay. we will see if that changes. And so, what can we say about Return to Oz? When we return to Oz, I mean well, that seems that seems fairly. I should have, I should have. I should no, have no, no, <laughs> no. I just mean, I just mean. I can't think of. So let's see, more creative things. When we follow the Yellow Brick Road, when we're not in Kansas anymore, when no, I like, I like your first one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that it shall be. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and pretty please review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we return to Oz as we watch Return to Oz. (laughs) For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boel. Ha 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 ha